0: This is The Best Podcast. B-E-S-T stands for business, entrepreneurship, startups, and technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. folks. We're going to dive into all things cybersecurity. And before we get started, just a quick round of introductions. You know, Jack and I met each other a few months ago when we were talking with Juniper Networks about their cybersecurity. And he is the creator of Darknet Diaries. It's a very, very popular podcast. If you want a good hacker story, go check out Jack. And Nicole, you are here. You are doing such amazing work. You've written for the New York Times. You are an author of an amazing book called This Is How They Tell Me. The World Ends, and that is on Amazon. I hope everyone checks that out. And of course, Dimitri, you cover all things, and, and you're actually very familiar with Twitter Spaces, but you talk geopolitics, you talk national security, cybersecurity, of course. You're the chairman of Silverado, Silverado Policy, and of course, you are the co-founder of CrowdStrike. So I am so, so excited to be here. But we're going to be diving into all things cybersecurity. Of course, this is a topic of focus. It affects all of us, It down to your computer, up to the economics of the world, the geopolitics, politics of the world. So whether we're diving into Ukraine, whether we're diving into Russia, China, supply chain, and beyond, there's so many things to talk about. And Dimitri, I'd love to start with you because you host many, many popular Twitter spaces here on Twitter, and you really, really dive into the aspect of Ukraine and, of course, with Russia as well. So Dimitri, can you just give us a high-level view of where things are in regards to cybersecurity and the use uh, within Ukraine at the moment?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I would say that uh, the common um, thinking uh, and and something that you may read in the media is that there's not really a lot going on in cyberspace in Ukraine is wrong. Uh, there's been quite a bit of it um, happening even before the war and certainly escalated after the war. Uh, but the real story, I think, is that uh, none of it is having much effect. Uh, probably the most impactful operations that the Russians have conducted in the course of this war in cyberspace, and frankly, perhaps ever in the course of military operation was of course the Viasat hack. Uh, Viasat is an American satellite company that uh, recently bought a European company about a year ago uh, that provides satellite communication services to Eastern Europe primarily. Uh, And uh, the Ukrainians were heavily relying on those satellite modems for communications both in their military sphere and elsewhere. And the Russians, as uh, has just been attributed publicly by the United States, Europe, and a number of other countries, uh, have uh, hacked into VSAT. we were able to uh, issue a malicious update uh, for more update to thousands of modems uh, that were in Ukraine, and there was some spillover effect as well. So, some of the modems in Germany, for example, that were being used to um, uh, communicate with windmills, uh, were were bricked as well. Uh, but as we know from Ukrainians, uh, Viktor Zor, in particular, who runs the Ukrainian cybersecurity efforts, uh, that had a significant effect in the initial hours and days of the war. Um, the Russians basically were able to achieve. Uh, uh, to some extent, a communication blackout for Ukrainian forces. Of course, the problem that they had is they weren't able to follow up on that with uh, their war plan. There was a total disaster. Um, So just like everything else that the Russians are doing, they're failing miserably at combined arms. Um, You're seeing that on the ground. You're seeing that with their lack of um, air and ground coordination. And, And you're seeing that in cyberspace as well, where they're... Um, some tactical advances that they're able to execute, but then are not able to take advantage of them and follow up uh, with kinetic efforts. Um, so VSA was perhaps the most impactful one. There have been a, a number of other wiper malware attacks in Ukraine, uh, but all of them sort of pale in comparison for obvious reasons with the bombing campaigns, with the missile strikes, with the ground warfare that's going on. So that's why you're really not seeing much coverage of it uh, and much focus on uh, these efforts because, uh, frankly, who cares when the network is down, when people are dying and uh, you have horrible war crimes that are taking place.
0: Wow. I mean, it sounds like there's so much, Dimitri, that's going on. And Nicole, I know that you have an interest in this space as well, and you have so much insight. So I'd love to hear your opinion, Nicole, about what Dimitri said, and then your own perspective and and own insights that you're uh, recognizing at the moment as well.
2: Yeah, I think Dimitri just laid that out beautifully. But um, what I keep telling myself and others is that we're watching the limits of cyber war tested in real time right now. the question, not surprisingly, that I get the most right now is why haven't we seen more? Um, why didn't we see Russia take out the grid in the days of, uh, before their invasion or time to their invasion like they did in 2015, 2016? And I think that it's a combination of things. I think that if, if Russia believed its own intelligence... Uh, that it would, you know, have its puppet government installed in Kiev in 48 to 72 hours. Why would they want to sabotage their own critical infrastructure? You know, they would want those things running for when their puppet government was installed. Um, I think it's interesting, more as an intellectual enterprise uh, exercise right now, to just think about maybe there is some kind of mutually assured digital destructive destruction Um Playing out, you know, perhaps Russia didn't want to go full gangster on its capabilities in the days, um, early days of the invasion, for fear that it might trigger a direct uh, confrontation with the West. You know, everything we've seen, even the most high precision cyber weapons like Stuxnet, eventually leak out, and we saw that with Stuxnet. We saw that with NotPetya, um, and so perhaps they feared that by detonating these capabilities, they would maybe end up triggering inadvertently a direct confrontation with the West. Um, we, we really don't know. But I think really my, my answer to this is just wait. You know, we saw actually evidence that Russia did, in fact, Uh, Ukrainian substations with malware, sophisticated malware, they call it in destroyer, I think, um, that would have shut power to millions of people. But they didn't actually time the attack until uh, it was clear that they were losing this war in early April. And fortunately, uh, you know, Ukraine cyber authorities together with the private sector were able to detect that attack and mitigate it before they could actually shut the power off. And so I think, you know, we're learning more and more about what was actually deployed. But I think Dimitri's right, which is, you know, compared to what's happening kinetically, what's happening militarily compared to the sort of loss of life and then the horrific things that we're learning about on the ground, um, no one cares about some wiper malware. And, you know, the question is, what what does digital escalation look like in this space? You know, what is the potential for continued Digital escalation, and on that, I, I I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think that at some point, um, with the tightening of sanctions, with the ban of Russian oil and vodka, et cetera, um, you know, with with funding that we're providing to the Ukrainians and, and military support, I think at some point Putin will respond, and I think the most likely avenue for retaliation is going to be some form of cyber attacks on the west. And you know, unfortunately in too many cases we've seen that Russia already has access to our systems. You know, no one has even come out and said that we've been able to successfully kick the SVR out of our systems here after the Solar Winds attack. You know, we've seen so many Russian attacks over the past decade on our own critical infrastructure on oil, gas, facilities. We've seen them probe nuclear plants. Um, and in too many cases, I think they, they do have access and we know that they have capabilities. You know, we saw them shut the power off in Ukraine. We saw what happened with NotPetya. And more recently we have, um, revealed that there are tools that they've developed. I see Andy on the call, you know, Andy called it the Swiss army knife of hacking tools was recently discovered, which was this tool called pipe dream that, you know, could really cause serious destruction and sabotage, um, you know, our pipelines and critical infrastructure. So we know they have the access, we know that they have the capabilities, we know that they are um, pouring resources into honing those capabilities. What we have not seen, perhaps until now, is uh, a geopolitical impetus to pull the trigger. But I think the longer this goes on, the more likely they will have less to lose and will deem it. Uh, necessary to pull that trigger. And so unfortunately, I think the threat level um, kind of only continues to escalate for blowback. Now, the one thing that I think I didn't anticipate is just how quickly the public sector and the private sector um, would start collaborating in real time, you know on revealing these Russian efforts before they could detonate in the destroyer case, and then more recently with Pipe Dream. Um, You know, now I'm I'm a little bit inside the tent with CISA because I left the New York Times and and joined them in an advisory capacity, and everything I'm hearing is that we've never had this level of public-private collaboration that we have right now um, responding to this threat. So, in other words, we're not letting a good crisis go to waste, and you know, perhaps we are better prepared right now for what might be coming than we ever have been in this in this regard.
0: Wow. You spoke so much great insight right there. Thanks for sharing that, Nicole. And Jack, I'd like to swing it over to you as well. Based on what Dimitri just shared, based on what Nicole just shared, I'd love to hear your insights as well as what do you think will happen next?
3: Yeah, this isn't quite my... Uh, beat that I've been paying att- close attention to, so uh, I'm not sure I've got much more to add, but my big concern here is the information control that Russia is doing right now. If you uh, interview the average Russian, they're going to have a very strange view of wh- why they're in war. They're, they're, war doesn't even exist. They don't. A lot of them are denying that there is even a war happening, and I think that's a fascinating thing to to just kind of step back and and wonder like imagine a world that you don't even know your country's going to war and uh, how did they how did they control that on you and um, maybe dimitri has some more information on this of of how that's even being done but that's a really fascinating view for me right there yeah dimitri are, are you
1: seeing that yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, uh, you're talking about the Russian domestic audience, right?
3: Yeah, the, the, the Russians who live in Russia are, are unable to speak out against this, but then there's a lot of them that don't even know that this is happening, and some know it, but they have total misinformation on why they're even going to war.
1: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's not surprising. We've seen it in other countries where if you want to believe something, you're only going to pay... To attention to the sources of information that you want to believe and you can ignore everything else and of course it's fairly easy in Russia to ignore it because uh, in Russian media on Russian internet or runet as it's called uh, you won't find any of those contradictory sources of information uh, so you kind of have to go seek them out, join Telegram and look at Ukrainian channels or try to access Western sites through VPNs. It's not that hard, but you have to be interested in seeking that information out. And most people are just not um, um, focused on that. And, and I frankly, just, It's hard for know. me
3: to see a world where I don't see the entire Internet and I can't just turn on. I mean, every channel I look on on the Internet, every website I go to, I see, you know, this tor- terrible thing that's happening and I just can't imagine how Russians don't open their computers or their phones and just see the same thing. How, are, how is it being controlled? Well, a lot of the news sites are being blocked, so unless you're on the VPN. But most, most just don't bother going there. They want to go read sources of information that tell
1: them their country is great and that they're winning. Who wants to read about the atrocities that their country is committing or how their country is being ostracized globally? So people are just self-selecting the source of information that they want to see. But I want to go back real quick, if I can, uh, to just address uh, one of the things that Nicole has said. Um, So I I made a few very public predictions uh, before the war, during the course of this war. Uh, One of them, of course, in in December was when I predicted that the war was going to take place, but I also predicted um, that cyber attacks would be part of um, Russia's arsenal of retaliation for the sanctions, and clearly that has not yet happened. And I'm actually starting to think that there's a chance it might not happen at all Um, A small chance. Um, I think it's more likely than not. But what you're seeing right now from Putin is that, one, he has been surprised by the uh, level of sanctions that have been lobbied on the Russian economy. They clearly were not prepared for that. Uh, Frankly, he probably feels like he's been lied to by his own people because he told them back in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea and the uh, uh, attempt to take parts of the Donbass Uh, that uh, the country needs to be prepared for sanctions, and he's been told uh, by his subordinates that uh, they've managed to create a quote-unquote independent economy that would not be hurt by Western sanctions, and clearly all that went up in smoke uh, on February 24th. Um, But I think he's still harboring quite a bit of— Uh, Ambition and and hope that he can get the sanctions removed, if not all of them, then at least the ones that are most impactful, because he still has leverage. And and the biggest uh, uh, Trump card that he's got uh, in his deck is the blockade of the Black Sea. That is really. Um, Something that is impacting not just Ukraine, it is literally strangling the Ukrainian economy because so many of their exports are going out through maritime ports on the Black Sea and the Azov Sea. Obviously the Azov Sea, particularly the port of Mariupol, has already fallen to the Russians. Um, but um, there is no alternative for shipping uh, rail cannot sustain the level of um, uh, exports that the Ukrainians have both grain exports uh, as well as um, uh, coal and um, and various metals and industrial products that the Ukraine is producing um, and it's much more expensive and much more slow uh, so he is hoping that he can get concessions if not from Ukraine then from the rest of the world because obviously we are, facing a very dire situation globally now because Ukrainian grain is not getting to... its customers worldwide, so people in Africa may be starving, in the um, Middle East and uh, parts of Asia, um, and that can create uh, not just famine but uh, a lot of geopolitical instability. So he um, actually, earlier today, uh, made an offer from his deputy foreign minister to lo- uh, to uh, basically remove the blockade of Ukrainian ports allow them to export at least grain uh, in exchange for lowering sanctions. Um, We'll see if anyone bites on that. But the longer this goes on and the worse um, that the inflation gets, food prices, food shortages, famine, uh, the more leverage he's going to have. So I think he's hoping not to resort to cyber attacks and to get things accomplished um, um, through this extortion campaign. Uh, If he doesn't uh, get his way through that, then, yes, I think cyber attacks are on the table.
0: And Nicole, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Do you agree that that's something that you would anticipate? Do you have you know alternatives that you think could happen as well, Nicole?
2: I have, I have mixed thoughts on this. I mean, how do you remove sanctions against someone who has um, endorsed, uh, you know, this level of brutality uh, that we're seeing on the ground? and. But, I, you know, I think Dmitri's right. If you look at this strictly from a real politic view, um, the blockade of the is the trump card. And, um, you know, that that might be what does it. Um, but I think just in general, you know, Putin, they have invested so much in their cyber capabilities and to getting a toehold into. Um, our systems into western systems into critical infrastructure so much clearly into these capabilities uh, for sabotage and destruction Uh, and i don't think they're just going to sit back um and and not detonate some of those capabilities at some point in the future it might not be in 2022 but at some point um you know that will happen and i just hope that by that point we're better prepared from a resilience perspective um, than we have been over the past few years um I wanted to tell you guys a, a, a fun story uh that I haven't shared yet on the information war. Um and I wish I'd memorized the quote and I didn't, Um, you know, now that I'm sort of outside the New York times, I don't bring my notebook with me everywhere, but um, there's a fun story to be told on, on the information war uh, story here. So, you know, one, I I give immense credit to the United States for declassifying their intelligence about the timing of the Russian invasion. I think that's probably the first time that we have taken a proactive approach uh, to combating Russian information warfare and, you know, we were pretty clear almost to the date uh, to say this is this is when Russia will invade, they will op- offer some bullshit pretext for this war, um, and this will happen. And I think that that really threw um, Putin off balance. You know, we essentially called every card he had to play. So the story I want to tell you is <laughs> that, uh, you know, since then Ukraine has really been winning the information war. And the story I want to tell you is that It's not been reported before, but it's this. So um, apparently there is a CEO, I won't name him, but there is a CEO in Silicon Valley who is Ukrainian, who went to college with Zelensky. And in the days uh, of of the Russian invasion, of the early Russian invasion, uh, Zelensky called the CEO of his and said, listen, our intelligence suggests that Russia is going to bomb the five links we have going in and out of the country that essentially is the backbone for our internet infrastructure. And can you help? And so the CEO uh, called Mark Andreessen and Mark uh, and said, you know, can you help? Do you know Elon Musk? We think Maybe Starlink could be uh, the bridge here. And Mark said, yes. And so he called Elon. So, you know, we all have strong feelings about Elon perhaps right now, but this is maybe a, a positive story about Elon, which is that, um, he said to Elon, "You know, can you can you help with this?" And um, Elon was silent for for a second, and then said something to the effect, and here's where I wish I'd written it down, something to the effect of, "Oh, um, yeah, sticking it to a totalitarian autocrat." That's on my bucket list, and that's when he <laughs> agreed to send in the Starlink infrastructure. And apparently, there was a, a kind of major clandestine operation to get these Starlink servers and infrastructure to Poland to um, send them into Ukraine via Poland in these camouflaged trucks. And that is what has been keeping uh, Ukraine's internet infrastructure alive um, during the invasion and what has enabled all of us to um, kind of break through Russia's lies and narratives um, about the invasion and to get these tremendous images of what's happening on the ground. So I thought I would share that today because... You know, not only is, is um, Russia losing militarily, they've been losing on the information front. And it's not um, just sanctions. It's actually like some in the private sector stepping up here. Um, and we're seeing that kind of over and over again. So I thought today was a good a good day for a good, good story.
0: Absolutely. We always love a great story here. A great Elon story as well is fantastic. And and obviously, for folks in the audience, uh, welcome to this conversation as we touch on all things cybersecurity going on around the world. We've been talking about Ukraine and Russia. Now, Elon comes up, and I'm sure we could get into the bots and things, but we won't do that for you folks today. Let's keep going with the flow on this one, though, because I'm curious. And Jack, I'm going to go to you next. Just based on, you know, I'd like to think that the U.S. has priorities in regards to cyber attacks on our own country. And I'd be curious, how does the U.S. go about looking at that priority list? Where are the areas of critical infrastructure that need to be protected that someone like Russia or whoever else, China for that matter, could look at and want to attack? Because for folks in the audience, they may not know what could happen next in the West.
3: Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure exactly what the priority the checklist would be for them, um, but I think uh, protecting the, you know our own country would be the first start, right? So, what would be a uh, critical infrastructure in our country that could be electricity, water, oil, gas flow, um, and and these kind of things? And I think there have been some situations where the National Guard has actually done some uh, penetration tests on these on these companies to sort of help make sure that they are secure and doing what they can to to keep the uh, the, the systems online. Um, but yeah, I think um, national intelligence is another thing where we don't want our secrets spilled and there's definitely some foreign actors trying to get into there. And um, the, any cost of human life as well would be a, a high priority if there's anything that could, you know, sabotage that, such as, uh, well, I guess you can come up with your own imagination there. But um, I also think that uh, financial damages would also be another uh, a big thing that they'd be considering. Uh, as far as things to secure in on the in the US. Uh, and then after that, so there is uh, assistance with uh, allies and um, other nations as well.
0: Mm. And Dimitri, I'd love to get your strategic mind on this from a high level. Obviously, you have a lot of insight into national security and, and geopolitics as well. For the folks here that live in the US, what would we be looking for, right? And make it as simple as possible. If External countries and uh, organizations were looking to go towards the U.S., where do you think they would put their approach? You know, where would they focus their attention Uh, and and kind of walk us through what that could look like, hypothetically?
1: Well, if if we're talking about Russian retaliation for the sanctions, I think the most likely targets are going to be energy, where they know uh, that the the U.S. and, and frankly, Europeans even more so are struggling uh, to, um, deal with inflation and energy prices, shortages of supply. And, um, you know, as, as the Europeans in particular trying to compensate, um, uh, with LNG for, for Russian gas, particularly countries that uh, have already been cut off, uh, from Russian gas because they refuse to pay, uh, through Gazprom bank, um, in rubles. Um, that's where, um, Russia knows it has opportunities to try to impact that supply by hitting LNG terminals or pipelines, like we saw with Colonial about a year ago, although that was in many ways self-inflicted. Most people don't appreciate that the pipeline itself was not hacked. Uh, um, The company chose to shut it off voluntarily because they just didn't know the full impact of the hack on their business systems. Uh, But nevertheless, um, those types of disruptions they know can further spike energy costs um they're very keen watchers in moscow of the u.s political situation they're very well aware of the midterms are coming up, and uh, president biden's approval ratings are falling and uh how inflation and price of gas at the pump is playing into that so anything that they can do to exacerbate that uh would be certainly easily approved uh in the kremlin and uh financial sector is um also likely target um purely from just a symmetric retaliatory perspective, since the Russian banks have come under these severe sanctions. um, They may decide to retaliate um, against the banking sector or perhaps uh, more fundamental critical financial infrastructure in this country, uh, purely as a a lashing out. Um, But um, the um, uh, this, this is something, of course, we have seen from Iranians before, where in, in 2012 they launched uh, denial-of-service attacks, lasted a couple of years uh, against the U.S. financial sector, um, not really achieved a lot of impact, but a lot of it was due to the um, very severe sanctions that the Obama administration at the time put in place on Iranian uh, financial uh, organizations. Um, so th- those are the most likely scenarios. But, um, you know, They could also find targets of opportunities, so um, no one should think that those are the only options that they have.
0: Yeah, and and Dimitri... In a way what do we do about that either proactively or reactively because from a proactive standpoint i can only imagine you know as we look at the different applications different systems out there you know are we paying attention to you know moving it closer to where the software is built just in regards to you know making sure that that stuff is developed the right way but or even how do we know what we're building uh, our applications on and how they're being built so how do we proactively prevent this, just your high-level view, and at the same time, r- retroactively, or rather reactively, if something was to happen, how would you imagine the, the U.S. responding to specific scenarios that you just you just shared with us?
1: So, you know, the one thing that we can learn from the Ukrainians, and they have eight years of experience getting just hammered by the Russians with all kinds of WIPO malware attacks and, and other disruptions, including um, uh, several attempts on their um, electric grid and turning off power, To to parts of the um, Ukrainian uh, regions. So, uh, one of the things that the Ukrainians have learned to do really, really well is to be resilient. So, not necessarily defend every single network and prevent the Russians from getting in or even prevent them from deploying malware, that is really, really hard to do. Um, and the Ukrainians have failed on, on a number of occasions at that. But what they're really, really good at is rebuilding. So the network gets destroyed by wiper malware. They can rebuild that in hours and be up and running. And that's something that we just have not focused much attention in this country is you look at colonial, Right okay, fine, the, the, the company perhaps made their own decision to shut off the pipeline, but then it took them a week to restart it uh, because they've never practiced it. It was the first time that they um, had done something like this. They literally had to fly over the entire pipeline in helicopter uh, to, to, to make sure that every uh, piece of, uh, of the equipment along the way was working correctly. That's just something that is inexcusable and has to change where you have to practice those types of disaster recovery mechanisms. I know lots of tech companies, particularly larger ones, do this on a routine basis where they just say, you know what, one day we're randomly going to shut off part of our data center and we're going to see what happens and how quickly we can rebuild it and what the impact is going to be. Everyone has to be doing that, particularly if you're in critical infrastructure sectors like energy, oil and gas, and, um, and finance. And
0: yep, go ahead, Nicole.
2: Yeah. So I was just going to say, you know, I I echo everything Dimitri said. I think colonial pipeline is the attack I think about a lot these days. um, And it's a useful prism for this conversation. I mean, uh, just in terms of targeting, I worry less about the financial sector than I do about the pipelines and the energy sector. Why? Because the financial sector has gotten religion about cybersecurity for a very long time, right? They know that if a single bank account is wiped out, you know, their their business is done. Everyone's going to move their money somewhere else. And so they've essentially had a, black, a blank check for cybersecurity for the last decade. Um, you know, the, the Iranian <laughs> DDoS attacks on the financial system, uh, you know, raised their threat level and actually helped them in the way of preparedness. And they are the ones that can afford to basically buy former NSA, uh, former Cyber Command um, operators and bring them in house and create their own mini intelligence agencies to track these threats in real time and, and defend their networks. So they are as prepared as as you could hope um, had hoped for. It's it's the it's the energy sector that really um, has shown itself to be ill prepared, and that is what Colonial Pipeline was all about. You know, just like Dimitri said, you know, they didn't have any confidence in the separation between their business systems and their operations, the pipeline operations. And so they took the preemptive step of shutting down the pipeline itself. How did they get hacked? Uh, they got hacked because they forgot to deactivate an old employee account. That employee had a crap password. And that essentially allowed uh, cyber criminals uh, with, as far as we know, no real connection to a nation state to hold their entire operation hostage. But as I was reporting that attack, you know, it's important to remember that um, David Sanger and I actually got our hands on a confidential Department of Energy assessment, and that ass- assessment at the time said that as a country, the United States could only afford two to three more days of Colonial Pipeline being down before that attack brought our economy to its knees. You know, and really, that is the sad state of American cybersecurity. That you know, one employee's crap password and the failure to deactivate their account could have uh, basically grinded our economy to its knees. And actually, you know colonial pipeline carried diesel, uh, gas, and jet fuel. And it wasn't so much the gas and the jet fuel that were the issue. it was the diesel I learned, you know because you need diesel to run your factories. So if that's all it takes to really grind the US economy to its halt, you know there was a there was a playbook created there. And I think our adversaries watched these playbooks and adapt to them um, pretty well. And I think an attack on a colonial pipeline or two or three colonial pipelines right now would be a very powerful psychological weapon in this war, right? Because for for now, um, you know, unless Tucker, et cetera, have their way, there's still a lot of bipartisan support for sanctions. And we're all, you know, looking at what's happening with gas prices. But on some level, we're willing to sustain these gas prices because we're seeing what's happening on the ground in ukraine the question is you know how long will the american appetite to continue on with sanctions and support for ukraine continue when gas prices grow ever more astronomical or when you have a situation like the one we saw with colonial pipeline where people were panic buying at the pump and couldn't get gas and so that's that's really the attack scenario i am most worried about right now um you know one thing i want to bring up is, is kind of a, another I, I try to bring bring along some some um, room for optimism but one thing that i saw this morning that's worth highlighting is that actually ransomware attacks are down in the united states right now and that the nsa may have picked up some chatter that showed that cyber criminal groups are complaining about how you know people are are less willing to pay ransoms in these attacks right now because of the sanctions. And so they're finding us to be, you know, a more difficult target than we were last year. And I, I this report didn't really say it, but um, there there's uh, some suggestion that ransomware has picked up in Latin America. Um, so, you know, it's just one thing to point out that actually sanctions are having this unintended effect, perhaps on on ransomware payouts and making us a harder target.
3: Nicole, have you seen, I mean, if the if the United States can come to a halt because of an attack on a private company such as Colonial Pipeline, have you seen the U.S. government assisting and aiding in securing private companies such as that or helping them get back up and online?
2: Yes. I mean, like I said, I've been really impressed by the level of public-private collaboration right now. You know, it's worth stepping back, but When I first started covering cybersecurity at the New York Times 12 years ago, there was just almost like universal consensus that government sucked at cybersecurity and that it should just be taken away as much as possible from government, from the Department of Homeland Security and handed to the private sector. And then with Snowden, you know, that conversation about public-private collaboration became very toxic, right? Companies like Google were saying, over my dead body, am I handing anything to the U.S. government that I'm not required to by law, um, because apparently they're they're going through the back door in some cases. So I'm not going to do anything, even if I'm just sharing, you know, a, a piece of malware. And then, you know, there were these series of escalating attacks on the private sector. I think culminating with NotPetya, which hit Pfizer, which hit Merck. You know, which created an existential crisis for Merck. They couldn't, um, you know, produce their vaccines. They had to tap into the CDC's emergency. Uh, stockpiles of vaccines that year, and I think after that attack, there was this kind of step back in this conversation where they realized, wait a minute, you know, we could have used more intelligence um, from government uh, uh, on these issues. And so I think now what you're seeing is more of a balance where both sides realize that you need you need both sides of the equation um, to be talking to each other, to be sharing threat data, to um, be helping in the form of of testing, um, threats, uh, attack preparedness, uh, tools, you know, free tools to use to test your vulnerability and your attack surface. And so um, we're seeing that play out right now. I mean, in some cases, it, it only took a Slack channel to get these sites to be talking and, and sharing information. You know, Microsoft kind of famously now, um, you know, called up the White House when they discovered this wiper malware. And we're pretty quickly able to help um, entities in Poland and, and Ukraine uh, remediate and clean up from those attacks. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of sharing, but you know there are limits in the United States. You have to remember that we are we are set up backwards in some cases. You know, eighty five percent of our critical infrastructure—that's the the percentage that gets thrown around—but eighty five, some eighty five percent of our critical infrastructure is in private sector hands. You know, the government doesn't defend uh, water systems, pipelines, Um, you know, those systems are owned by private companies. And especially after Snowden, we don't want the NSA sitting in those networks. Other countries are willing to make that compromise like Israel, you know, where the government can in some cases sit in critical infrastructure networks and defend them in real time. We don't have that here. So the government actually relies on the private sector to share information about when they've been breached, or to share when they pick up, you know, a suspicious, um, a suspicious activity on their networks, or pick up malware. And unfortunately, for a long time, there wasn't a lot of sharing going back and forth. But I think right now, there's there is more sharing than ever, and I hope, I, I hope that that continues.
0: And Dimitri, to continue on this, and and folks, we can talk all day. There's a lot of great stuff here. So I highly suggest you follow everyone here on stage just to keep up with all the content they share here on Twitter and beyond. And and Dimitri, you know, you have a lot of experience. in with with the work you've been doing with with CrowdStrike, excuse me, as well. Can you talk more about that type of relationship with the public, private sector, and with you know the government as well? What what is that like? Do you feel like it's getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? Can you just kind of walk us through, give the folks in the audience a sense of what it's like?
1: Yeah, I think there's been a fundamental shift um, over the last, I would say, four or five years. Where the government has realized that the private sector is one, not monolithic. So there's a wide range of expertise and capabilities in the private sector. When you look at some of the best cybersecurity companies, they're very different from your, you know, water utility, municipal water utility, right? And the way you treat them and you work with them needs to be quite a bit different. And they also started to appreciate that the private sector is not just a helpless victim that, that just needs help that you have a range of companies out there that actually have visibility that the government does not have and um, that they can work with them um, in a collaborative fashion to learn more using each other's unique capabilities and uh, and insights. So that has been a major shift that has occurred um, in the last um, really half decade and, and has accelerated in recent years um, that has been really, really important um, the, the other thing that um, I think you're seeing happening is much more trust developing and a much better appreciation on the parts of the intelligence community in particular that you can afford to lose cyber sources. Just because you have insights into something that may have come from a foreign intelligence source um, in cyberspace uh, does not mean that you should treat that uh, as sort of, uh, you know, something that's so precious that no one can ever see unless they have high levels of clearance and and, and need to know. Uh, because the reality is, even if you do lose that, that access, you can, in many cases, um, quickly reacquire it. It's not the same thing as human intelligence where someone may literally die because – that information has been uh, has been compromised, uh, and uh, and also uh, when when it comes to attribution, for example, you have seen a, just a sea change on the part of government agencies and policymakers uh, starting to appreciate that yes, if we call a spade a spade and we actually say who is responsible for a particular cyber attack, like um, the U.S. government has just done with the, um, the ViaSat hack. Often does not even compromise any sources and methods. In fact, it may actually send a helpful signal to the adversary about your level of insights into their capabilities and and um, what they may be up to, and perhaps even one day have some deterrent effect. Although we're not yet seeing much of that. So those are, I think have been some of the biggest changes that we're seeing from the government. It still takes too long, uh, and particularly on the attribution side, uh, you have to appreciate that in most cases. Uh, U.S. government knows within hours, um, uh, you know, sometimes rarely within days, who's responsible. And it's simply the process of getting everyone in the government to consensus and agreement that this should be released publicly, coordination with allies that delays this by many months uh, in terms of public disclosure of that attribution.
0: And, Dimitri, I know... Uh, earlier this year, I think it was in early February, you talked about being part of the new Cyber Safety Review Board uh, with some world cro- world-class world experts, which is really fantastic to hear. And this is something that's going to be reviewing all the cyber events and doing assessments on those as well. You also mentioned that you're going to be doing your first review within 90 days, and we'll focus on Log4j, which you said is one of the most impactful cyber vul- vulnerabilities in recent memory. Can you walk us through the last 90 days and kind of where, how that's been going? Where are things right now? Where does that stand?
1: Well, I can't yet. Uh, I can't discuss our findings or process until we put out a report, but uh, we've been very hard at work and it's been just an amazing board to be a part of. Uh, it's just full of really highly capable people um, led by uh, Undersecretary for Policy Rob Silvers as a chair, um, uh, Heather Atkins uh, who runs security at Google as a co-chair. Uh, Many great people from government like Rob Joyce from NSA, Chris Inglis from um, the new national cyber director, um, and and many great people from the private sector as well. Um, And uh, as you said, we've been digging into Log4j, uh, one of the most uh, uh, challenging vulnerabilities that we have ever seen in terms of its widespread use, the difficulty of um, determining whether you really are vulnerable to it or not because it's embedded in so many products that are that may be way downstream and you may not be able to easily figure out a test uh, for how to exploit it Um, and the fact that it's going to be with us for a very very long time so um, you know stay tuned Uh, the report is coming soon and um, um, and uh, you'll hear more about it once once we put out our findings.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So one thing I'd love to ask each of you is as we look at the rest of 2020, where are each of you focusing your attention in regards to cybersecurity? You know, so we've talked about vulnerabilities and energy or finances. And Jack, I know that you brought up, you know, cryptocurrency with me before. So from a financial aspect, maybe we can start with you, Jack. Tell us, what are you focusing your attention on in the next six to 12 months?
3: Yeah, the things that have come onto my plate that really fascinate me are um, cybercriminals attacking us, like our individual accounts, and um, they're getting into our email addresses, they're getting into our cryptocurrency, and they're doing this in really fascinating ways, such as uh, SIM swapping attacks, like um, moving your phone number to their phone, and then they can do things like you know authenticate you using two-factor authentication because they're getting text messages or they're resetting your password to get into your email address and to to do some of these sim swaps it's just wild they're They're sometimes running into a mobile phone store, grabbing the tablet out of the person's hands that works there, who, you know, that tablet's the thing that can actually move phone numbers from one phone to another, and then running out and then quickly calling up everyone and saying, okay, who wants their phone, you know, swapped over today? And it's, um, it's just almost feral in, in a way. And so this is just so fascinating to me. And some of the stuff that they're doing when they're getting into your accounts are looking for anything that's valuable. Um, obviously your cryptocurrency, maybe access to your bank account. Um, if you have a good, uh, social media account, that might be worth some, some money. People are buying these social media accounts, but also things like, your Netflix account, your Chipotle account, your Hilton Honors account, uh, even your Apple Pay account—if they can get a hold of these, this, then they can sell that for other people. I mean, somebody uses your Chipotle account to buy burritos—that's fairly common these days. Um, and so it's—it's it's just wild to see this wild activity happening, and it's—and it's closer than we think. I, I used to kind of imagine this was happening maybe in Eastern Europe or Russian criminals doing this, but uh, a lot of times it's uh, teenagers in the U.S. and um, they're in these circles because they're seeing their their friends doing it online and stuff like that. and So they're joining in and it's just, it's got me so captivated. So this this is what I've been looking at a lot of and uh, I'll probably keep looking at it a lot this year
0: and a quick walk you know takeaway for the audience what's something they could do cuz you talked about the individual level is it setting up two factor authentication is it password managers what's your quick tip for everyone here
3: yeah they they like to look at previous database dumps at, as kind of a good starting point right so if your stuff has been seen in a previous dump that's in their hands right and they're going to say okay well i now have this person's e- email address And this password they used on this website, let's see if that logs into their, any accounts, right? All the ones I just listed. Um, And so it's good, obviously, to use different passwords for every single site you go to. But it's also, I'm starting to use different email addresses for certain things, right? So if my email address showed that, I don't want one email address that I log into all these forums and websites and shopping online and stuff because if any of those sites get uh, compromised, and that's the same email I use on my banking website or something like that. Then I've uh, got a problem there. So I want to make it more difficult, right? You know, they they typically need three things to get into our accounts: our email, our you know, our username, our password, and maybe a two factor authentication. And I want to make each one of those steps as difficult for them to find as possible. So using a different email address on on different sites, uh, using obviously a, a long, complex, unique password on every site you use, and then uh, for for two-factor authentication, SMS uh, two-factor authentication is not, is not as secure anymore because of all this SIM swapping that's going on. So it's better to use maybe a YubiKey or Google Authenticator or Authy or some other um, two-factor authentication
0: method. Wow. Thank you. And this is so relevant for folks in the audience things that you can do at the individual level right now. And so, Nicole, let's go over to you next, just with everything going on in the world. And it sounds like you're covering a lot of different aspects of this. Where's your attention focused in the next six to
1: 12 months?
2: Um, Work. You know, in all regards, like um the remote workforce has just created such an expanding attack surface. And I don't think we we even have a remote grasp on the vulnerability that this has introduced. I mean, we're just starting to see um criminal groups like Lapsus basically bribe um employees at organizations who've never been to corporate headquarters, who've never been to a you know all hands meeting in person to hand over their multi-factor authentication credentials to give criminal groups entree to their networks. I mean, that is fascinating. And how do you defend against that? You know, when I um, met with Kevin Mandia last week, he was saying that now at Mandiant, um, you know, when you call the IT desk, Uh, they have to call you back via Microsoft Teams and then you have to call them back. And it's just like the the amount of extra verification that is going on right now, it it has to continue. And there is no excuse not to have the bare basics deployed like multi-factor authentication. I think you know, at, at CISA, we're trying to figure out what is the best way to get this message across. And we finally decided it was something as simple as more than a password. You need more than a password. Your password's... Have been stolen and your passwords are easy to crack. The best thing you can do is deploy multi factor authentication. And so I think that's where a lot of the criminal activity is going. And then when I say work, I mean just on the workforce crisis we face. Um, that's really where my energy is deployed at yeah. CISA. I'm on this workforce committee subcommittee. And, um, you know, there is. There are millions of unfilled cybersecurity positions worldwide. We have hundreds of thousands of unfilled positions in the United States. It's not so much at the banks as I was speaking to earlier, but, um, you know, at these nonprofits, um, you know, who we rely on for for critical segments of our economy. they They can't fill these cybersecurity positions in government. We have way too many vacancies. And so the thing that I'm really focused on right now is how do we fill those vacancies? Um, How does government compete with the private sector to fill those vacancies when it can't match private sector salaries? How do we get rid of all the red tape? Um, That means it takes, you know, six months. And that's considered a good outcome to get someone qualified uh, with the technical skills into government. Um, and then how do we broaden the talent pipeline nationally? You know, how do we get more kids to become hackers? Um, how do we get more programmers interested in cybersecurity, STEM education? I mean, this is something that was sort of a wonky thing to talk about 10 years ago, but now it truly is a national security threat, especially when you consider how our adversaries are working around the workforce crisis. You know, in Russia, um, if you're a cyber criminal. You can do your thing so long as you don't hack inside Russia, and so long as when the government taps you for an operation, you do whatever they ask. In China, we see um, a lot of the more sophisticated operations now come from you know, this loose satellite network of private citizens who operate at the behest of the Ministry of State Security. You know, essentially forced conscription. And we don't have that luxury here. You know, the U.S. government can't tap the guy on Google at uh, Google on the shoulder and say. Tonight you're coming with us, and we certainly don't uh, employ cyber criminals. So how do we bridge that gap? I think is becoming a, a, a really urgent national security crisis, and so that's where I'm kind of spending most of my time.
0: Ooh, I love that topic. This is fantastic, Nicole. All right, Dimitri, we're going to wrap up with you, but I'm going to give you an option, Dmitri. You can either answer the question that Jack and Nicole have both been asked, which is where are you focusing your attention in the next six to twelve months, or Tell us a really kick-ass story that you've just experienced in your lifetime, based around cybersecurity, that you just think would be fascinating to tell the audience. So your choice. Which one would you like?
1: Well, unfortunately, you don't have the time for the story. But uh, you know, a couple of things that we're focused on at Silverado, which is a you know policy nonprofit that I founded, to try to accelerate um, policies in Washington. Uh, around both cybersecurity and broader geopolitical issues. Um, One of the things that we've been really focused on for last year is the federal cyber incident reporting legislation, which has just passed in March um, and been signed into law that requires major companies to report um, technical indicators associated with breach attempts to CISA. Um, So that's been really important. But beyond that, we really need to operationalize CISA as, as a CISO, as a Chief Information Security Office, for the civilian federal government. One of the things that has become very clear in incidents like SolarWinds and many others is that you just have so many executive branch agencies, over 100 of them, that will never have the capabilities, the expertise, the talent to do what's necessary um, in, in terms of securing their own networks, despite having some very sensitive and critical information. So, particularly for those smaller agencies, you really need to create a shared services model where, just like with buildings, for example, federal government buildings, you have one agency, General Service Administration, that manages that for everyone so that people don't have to order desks individually. They don't have to uh, manage all the bu- uh, the building operations. You need to do that in cybersecurity as well for some of the smaller agencies in a similar way to what. NCSC does in, in the UK, um, the National Cyber uh, Security um, uh, Center there. Um, so I think we're, we're still a long way from making CISA where it needs to be, which is really a true cybersecurity agency with operational responsibilities to secure the .gov. Um, and then beyond that, uh, working a lot, you know, I'm in a lot of boards, and, and it's really fascinating to, uh, to be in a different position now, where you have chief information security officers coming to you in the course of a, Board meeting to report uh, on their programs, and it just underscored something that I've been focused on for a while: is how uh, most cybersecurity. Uh, leaders don't know how to talk to executives, don't know how to talk to board members, particularly board members who are not technical, which is most uh, of the boards out there. And and they don't really have a way to provide metrics that are outcome-focused so that the board can evaluate how good is the program, is it moving in the right direction, does it need more resources, is it in the right place? And and that's something that um, I've I've been very passionate about for a long time. And I think something that um, you could even see uh, organizations like the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and others requiring private sector entities of certain types to report.
0: Wow. So much great insights here, folks. And you can follow each of these tremendous speakers. Uh, They have amazing content. And for instance, Dimitri, you host regular spaces, usually on Sundays. Is your next one coming up this Sunday or will it be in two
2: weeks? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so there won't be a space this Sunday. Uh, it's actually part of the podcast series called Geopolitics Decanted that we have at Silverado. You can subscribe uh, to it on Amazon and uh, Apple's um, Spotify and Google. Um, and um, uh, occasionally we have these live shows um, um, on the Ukraine war in particular that then appear on the podcast. So we will have a podcast that will be out this week, um, but uh, it won't be a live show. The live show will resume next week.
0: Excellent. So, folks, check out the live shows. They're awesome. I've listened to them before. Also, the the podcast, as well as Jack's podcast, Jack hosts Darknet Diaries, one of the most popular shows out there. Great hacking stories. Jack, when's your next one come out?
3: Every two weeks on Tuesdays.
0: So is that the next Tuesday? Awesome folks. Check that out next Tuesday. Uh, we'll be super excited to listen on that one. And Nicole, everyone follow Nicole and as well as check out her book. It came out last year. It's called, this is how they tell me the world ends the cyber weapons arms race. And the book is amazing. It's on Amazon. It has like 2,500 stars. I love it. Nicole, what are you doing next? Uh, where can people check out your book or audio versions? and, And what are you working on next?
2: Uh, um too many things. I um, paperback comes out soon. I'm working with CISA, and then um, I've started an advisory. So I'm actually working really closely with security startups that I think are actually going to move the needle um, on some of uh, some aspects of this threat. Um, and so I've, I've replaced my one job at the New York times with 10 jobs, but it keeps things interesting.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, folks. Well, I want to thank Nicole. I want to thank Jack. I want to thank Dimitri. Dimitri all awesome speakers. I want to thank everyone in the audience as well. Thank you for joining us today. Again, my name is Adam Sokolich, also known as the best of live audio. We talked about all things cybersecurity here today, and there will be many more of these great conversations as well. So I want to thank you all here on stage. I want to thank everyone in the audience, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Bye, everyone. Thank you.
1: Thanks, guys.
2: Bye.
0: This is The Best Podcast. B-E-S-T stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in all of our conversations are educating entertaining and engaging with the mission to help you succeed so follow us on all your favorite social media platforms subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and of course tune in live to the best podcast let's talk soon